Hello, fellow travelers. This is David Woods, your host and trusted guide. Welcome to our little fellowship as we gather to discuss the Christian life in a post-Christian world. We are broadcasting from Babylon with love. Four thousand years ago, if I had died an Egyptian of means, my body would have been attended to by a team of priests who would have quickly removed every one of my vital organs except for my heart. My heart would have been stuffed with natron salts, and then my body would have been wrapped in resin-soaked cloth that had been stenciled and embroidered with charms and blessings. Once this process was finished, a scarab-shaped amulet would be placed over my heart. And the whole point of this two-month process of mummification would be to preserve my physical body in its most ideal form to be reunited with my spirit in the afterlife. The moment of that reunification would have been fraught with various trials, the trials of demons and the trials of certain gates keeping me from my goal, which was the weighing of the heart ceremony. Before I could even get to the ceremony that would decide if the afterlife was going to be something I could participate in or if I would be annihilated by the god Amut, uh, I had to actually get through several gates and trials of demons. And, and in order to do that, again, if I was an Egyptian of means and had secured uh, what I needed for the journey, I wouldn't just have that scarab-shaped amulet over my heart. I would have a book of spells. This is called the Egyptian Book of the Dead. The Egyptian Book of the Dead is a series of spells, sometimes up to two or 3,000 spells, that would guide the prospective spirit through the various phases they needed to get through just to get to the weighing of the heart ceremony. Now, assuming I got all the way to that ceremony, or at least to the final step, I would have emerged in a moment in which my heart was going to be tested. And the heart for the Egyptians was the seat of memory. This is why it could not be taken out of the body, because the heart was almost like a film reel of the entirety of someone's life. Every thought, every deed was recorded in the heart. It was the seat of emotion and the seat of memory. So the heart was then going to be weighed on the scales by Anubis, the jackal-headed god of the dead, and it was going to be weighed against the pure feather of an ostrich. And this feather represented the just life. And if my heart was heavier than the just life, if it was weighed down with sin and things that I ought not have done and knew I should not have done, uh, and, and, and it was heavier than the perfect life or the just life, the life that I was expected to have led, then in that moment when the scales tipped and my heart was heavier than the feather, the crocodile-headed god Amut would appear and devour me, extinguishing my existence forever. If my heart was equal or lighter than the feather, I would be taken by the god Ra 
into the court of Osiris, which would be the final place for the last approval before I entered into the eternal field of reeds and were was potentially, hopefully, reunited with all of the departed dead in my ancestral line. Now, in order for myself to pass the weighing of the heart ceremony, because remember, my heart knows everything that I've done, and so it's going to tell all the things that I've done, and I've done some things, okay? So if I'm going to pass the weighing of the heart ceremony, I need the help of this scarab amulet because it's a magical amulet that has been placed over my heart and the amulet will run interference so that my heart will not say everything it knows. So literally stenciled onto this magical amulet is the phrase, do not stand as a witness against me. This is the role of magic. This is the role of magic, not just in the Egyptian afterlife. This is the role of magic today. To try to have power over our circumstances and situations, regardless of our actual character or behavior or devotion. The heart knows the truth. The magical amulet attempts to mask and cover and manipulate reality for some good and brighter future. Well, my friends, this is the subject of our discussion today. And by discussion, I mean monologue, unless I'm just going to be looking at producer Zach the whole time, because I am talking about magic today. I am talking about the role of magic, not just for the Egyptians. I'm talking about the role of magic today. I'm talking about how magic and faith are not the same thing, and they can get entangled in confusing ways. I did a bit of my uh, own research on the subject of magic. I'm going to pull together a few different strands, and hopefully what will emerge from this is something that is clear about how people attempt to engage a broken and difficult world, lives that do not always work out in the way we hope they will, and where we seek for the power to alter or to change our experience uh, to our advantage or for our benefit. So that, that's what I'm talking about today. So I open with this image of magic in the ancient world, magic in the Egyptian Book of the Dead, um, because it's a, just a very clear presentation of the role of magic to manipulate reality for someone's gain. Uh, now, magic, if you just want to think about it in a, in a definitional sense, magic is based on two things, okay? It's based on a worldview that there exists certain connections or correspondences between objects that people don't always necessarily think are related. Um, so the scarab beetle, the heart, things like this. There are connections that magic believes are there, correspondences between objects in the natural world. Magic is very much about the natural world. And part two is the magus or the person who knows magic can make use of these connections to some practical purpose. So a magician technically is someone who has discovered the hidden but real connections or correspondences between objects in the world and is able to manipulate those bonds or those correspondences for their own pleasure or their own gain. 
um, or their own will, let's just say. So magic is 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 kind of like a proto-technology. I used to describe it as a, a technology of the hidden realms or um, a technology of the spiritual. Um, but it is a technology. It is very much about certain kinds of inputs produce certain kinds of outputs. It is very much a cause and effect thing because it believes there is a relationship between certain objects, and if you can manipulate that relationship, you can produce certain results. Just like if I were to open my phone by putting my thumb on the button and pushing down, or by inputting the key code on my phone, my phone will turn on. Um, that, that, that is technology, an automatic result based on the correct input. Or as I would say sometimes with my students, what makes Ron bad at magic in in the Harry Potter series? What makes Ron bad at magic is he usually has bad technology. He has bad setup, bad machinery, right? His uh, his wand is broken or bent, and he doesn't pronounce the words of the incantations correctly, right? It's not because he's a bad person, right? Magic has nothing to do with who you are, has nothing to do with your character, has nothing to do with wisdom, has nothing to do particularly with anything we would say as virtue. Magic is a technology. So the, the bad kid, Malfoy or whoever, um, can do magic as well as he can do it, as well as he can pronounce the words, as well as his, his machinery works well, if he has a, a high-quality wand, because it's just a technology. It has nothing to do with the person doing it, per se. It's just a technology of hidden connections in the world. And, and so when you, when you have this kind of image of the technology of hidden connections, you have something that, that attributes to people who can tap into those connections um, the attempt to, at power, right? And this is why, by, by the way, in the Bible, magic is, is like... Is, very clearly um, outlawed um, the use of witchcraft, divinization, sorcery, all these kinds of things. I mean, anywhere, where can I pull? Let's see. How about, how about Exodus twenty two eighteen? Do not allow a sorceress to live. Don't allow it, Zach. Don't allow a sorceress to live. Deuteronomy 18.11, one who casts spells or is a medium or spiritist or who consults the dead shall be cast out right? Uh, how, about, how about a Leviticus 19.31? Do not turn to mediums or seek out spiritists, for you will be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 26, I will set my face against anyone who turns to mediums and spiritists to prostitute themselves by following them, and I will cut them off from their people. Uh, again, Leviticus 20, 27, a man or a woman who is a medium or spiritist among you must be put to death. You are to stone them. Their blood will be on their own heads. This is taken as a matter of life and death in the scriptures, especially in the Hebrew scriptures, because the idea behind magic is this manipulation of power that is outside the authorization of God, the author of life and death. And so a medium or a spiritist or a sorcerer or a magician in the ancient world of the Hebrews is someone who is going around the author, is going around the source of power, is going around God um, to try to tap into a way of manipulating reality or conjuring reality uh, according to other means. And, and again, usually what you would say is, um, at best, it's fake and a fraud and a lie, and at worst, it's plainly demonic. And this is the idea that if the universe is indeed crowded with spirits and there is indeed a good uh, that is personalist and an 
evil that is personalist, um, then when you go against or outside of the bonds of the good, um, you are tapping into a form of power, or at least attempting to tap into a form of power or control that is diabolical or malevolent. And that's why you get these Levitical commandments. This is why this cannot be tolerated in the community of God's people, because it brings in a, a poison or an infection um, of that is that is again at at worst uh, pure fraud and at best demonic. Um, if it if it does work, it's almost it's worse, right? Because then there's a there's a darkness behind that. You see this also not just in the old. It's easy to be like, oh, the Old Testament. These, <laughs> you know, oh, once upon a time, you know, these people have really intense about certain things and believed in certain things. But you see this in the New Testament. You see when um, Paul is in the city of Philippi, um, he is being harassed by it says a demonically possessed girl who is making money for her masters by by being a fortune teller. And when Paul gets so annoyed with the girl's harassment, because it's like this demon harassing him, um, he finally turns around and he casts the demon out of the girl. And what that, what that does in the passage, this is in the book of Acts, um, what that does in the passage is it means she no longer has the power to tell the future. And there's really no discussion in the, in, the, um, in the passage of whether or not she could. Plainly, she could on some level. Plainly, she had some ability because it is noticeably removed from her when the demon is removed from her and her masters get ticked off and they turn on Paul and they're like, You're, you know, we need to get rid of this guy. He just, he just lost us a ton of coin because this girl is now healthy and she no longer has this demonic possession. Um, but I mean, just almost in passing, it's like, oh yeah, she was a fortune teller because she was possessed of a demon and Paul having uh, cast that demon out ruins her trade as a magician or as a fortune teller soothsayer. Um, so I mean, it happens there. And then it happens, of course, you see magic again appear in uh, Acts when Paul is in Ephesus. And I've made much of this in other contexts, so if you've heard this from me before, my apologies. Um, but the city of Ephesus is just, is just one of the most uh, important centers of magic in the ancient world. Um, because magic is always the kind of power, it's always this kind of occult power, hidden power, that can kind of travel home with you. Um, and so the city of Ephesus, massive city, crossroads of the ancient world, temple of Artemis, seven wonders of the world, one of the seven wonders of the world, one of the, the largest uh, Greek building in, in, in history, period. The largest building um, um, ever built in the Greek world um, was the temple of Artemis. Um, but Ephesus was just teeming with magic and, and, the, and the interest in magic. Because again, magic always accrues to someone the ability to try to control reality. And, and so when Paul preaches the gospel in the city of Ephesus, it says that, that so many people were saved and those who were saved in Ephesus brought forth their books of magic and burned them in the street. And it says that the total amount for those books of magic was something like 50,000 drachma, which a good sort of study Bible footnote or something is going to say it was the, it was a year's salary for 150 men. Um, which, which is just, I mean, you're talking about, you know, almost $10 million or something like that. Right. I mean, it's just outrageous when the people of Ephesus were converted, they were converted, many of them out of sorcery, out of magic, out of an attempt to, uh, tap into powers, that were outside of God's authorization for the purpose of practical gain. And, uh, and you can imagine in the ancient world the desire and the need 
for help, um, the desire, the need for help in childbirth. That would have been a predominant one for the cult of Artemis. Um, Help us get pregnant. Help us um, help this this woman survive her pregnancy. Help this child make it through the pregnancy. Um, All these fertility rites and the cults and the the forms of sorcery and magic that attended um, fertility and the bearing of children and the birth of children. You can start to see this stuff. This is not just 2,000 years ago. This is the kind of stuff that's coming back today. So I was talking to a friend of mine um, who had gone to a baby shower in South Orange County. And when she got there, um, she was told that they had a, um, it was a, it was a lady who was doing a cleanse of the house. I'm going to get this right here. Hang on. Um, oh, okay. It was a shaman. I'm sorry. I should have said shaman. Um, so she gets to the baby shower and there's a shaman present. And this is like this year in Orange County, California. Um, and the woman was giving a sage cleanse to whoever wanted one. Um, and my friend, you know, being a Christian and not sure what that meant, uh, you know, just sort of ducked to the side, you know, no big deal. Um, but then, um, right before uh, the ceremony um, in which she was going to do the sage cleanse, my friend's like standing there, um, two girls created a, a flower or a, like a crystal circle in the middle of the room with one main crystal in the middle. And when it was all finished, everyone gathered around in a circle around this sort of like, um, this sort of circle of blessing they created with these, with these crystals and these flowers. Um, with this main crystal in the middle. Then all the girls gathered around in a circle and the, and the, the shaman opened it up explaining who she was, her, her sort of shaman name. And then she had each of the girls say, my name is this, I'm the granddaughter of this, the, da- the daughter of this person, and the mother of this person, like fill in the blanks, right? And they were like chanting it or like kind of like in this kind of rolling rhythm. After that part was finished, it was opened up for each of them in the circle to give like an offering, a positive thought about the, the girl who was going to, the, about the girl who was pregnant and a promise that they would make to her, right? It was like a circle. It became like a circle of blessing or something like this. Um, and and then my friend said she she had eventually she left <laughs> at some point. I mean, she had some uh, finger foods and then she kind of moved on with her life. But um, but then she heard one of her friends that was there for a little bit longer um, that at another part of the ceremony, all the girls intertwined their arms in red string. I don't know what that is, that menstrual string within the circle and, and did like some sort of like prayer of blessing or something like that. And, um, and when I was asking my friend about this, she sent me pictures, which was pretty amazing. Um, she sent me pictures of this like blessing circle or whatever. And then she goes, oh, I forgot to mention the crystal in the middle was plainly a vagina crystal. I just said that. I am so sorry. Um, I hope I hope you had earmuffs on your children. Um, and it was like it was like a circle of the sick. I, I really caught uh, producer Zach off guard with that last comment there. Um, but it was this circle of like the sacred feminine, very very Artemis stuff. Like this this would be very familiar. Paul would have been like, hey, I, wait, wait a minute, wait, I've seen things like this. I mean, this is like it's like a new paganism. It's like all the old kind of uh, kind of sorcery stuff is like coming back in vogue. Uh, for people in, in, in our time. And so 
So magic in, in the New Testament is something people are saved out of and they like burn their books of spells, but magic has sort of reappeared in our sort of nouveau post-Christian uh, climate. And it's, it's reappeared in the strangest places. And I, I talk about different places different in different lectures that I give in different places. But um, let's just say basic things like um, uh, certain yoga, you know, obviously certain yoga practices are, are plainly sort of magic, especially those that tap into the belief about like chakras, uh, spiral centers of energy at different points in the human body that have different um, color signatures. And it's never clear, by the way, if you do any research on like the gurus who seem to know everything about chakras, it's never clear. They never agree on how many chakras, what their names are, even what color they are, which is really frustrating, I think, because it's like, man, if you're going to if you're if you're going to invest in something but i remember there's a girl i went to grad school with who taught yoga and then the other day i saw online she was offering a a chakra class uh, like a chakra workshop for anybody who wanted to learn how to tap into these spiral centers of energy uh, on the body that have color signatures and moods and all this kind of stuff i was like whoa um, but maybe 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 you've heard of uh, sort of different things so maybe it's a chakra thing or, or maybe, and I've, I've made this connection before, maybe you've heard of different kinds of like essential oils. Uh, now, when I mention this to my students, like the, my classes usually kind of freak out because Orange County is like the, the mecca of essential oils. But essential oils, at least the two largest companies, Young Living and doTERRA, uh, essential oils come from a deep tradition of magic because they're, they're founded by, um, well, they're founded by a pretty, pretty nut nutty um, Mormon guy who's no longer with us, but uh, there's an incredible article by Rachel Monroe called How Essential Oils Became the Cure for Our Age of Anxiety. And in it, she she traces so many of these interesting kind of connections, but one in which she does not trace is the connection to um, folk magic in the Mormon tradition, um, which I'm going to get to in just a second. But so and, and let me just let me just say this because I've offended so many people without really meaning to when I talk about essential oils. Many people use essential oils because it's sort of pleasant smells and it's nice, right? And then other people use essential oils because they really believe they have like spiritual properties. So because of the Mormon connection for the two major companies of essential oils, you will get products like acceptance, and you will get products like um, forgiveness. Like you'll get an oil um, mixture called forgiveness. And let me just read to you. Now you can get, well, let's see, Young Living's, it's called forgiveness. doTERRA, it's called forgive. But let me just read this to you because these are just, these are billion dollar companies and tons of people are, are um, buying and selling these all the time. But just listen to the claim of this product from doTERRA called forgive. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Um, the doTERRA Forgive Essential Oil Blend offers an organic aid overcoming a negative past and pressing forward into a bright future. Often, the process of overcoming difficult experiences, relationships, or feelings can prove to be a trying task, but living with emotions of hurt, anger, and sadness can also cause a splinter in your overall well-being that can fester with time. doTERRA Forgive oil is formulated with specific natural ingredients that when combined act as an aid to those seeking to leave their negative or hurt feelings behind to experience the peace 
and joy that accompanies true forgiveness. When you incorporate the aromatic benefits of doTERRA Forgive into your journey of forgiveness, you'll find a greater strength to press forward and leave the past in the past. So, that that's magic, my friends. That, 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 is, that is literally using the language offered to us by the Lord and saying that, this aromatic blend will, and it doesn't say how, because of course there's no science behind this. Um, this aromatic blend will help you to move on from a difficult past. I mean, I was talking there about a splintered self. That's almost the language of Christian science and divine mind things where, you know, um, suffering is a form of a malady of your mind or your malady of your spirit. Um, I mean, the claims there, and I'm just taking this at, at almost, almost at random, literally, it was just because a week ago someone mentioned this to me. Um, I'm, I'm not against lavender. You know what I mean? Lavender, from what I understand, scientifically proven to be able to help with sleep, okay? Uh, it's very relaxing. It's, it's very nice. I'm not against the two or three oils that have some scientific backing to it, but what most what what is happening with most of these kinds of things they're moving into spiritual territory and they're claiming they're trying to win back for people in an age of anxiety a sense of control a sense of healing i mean a really a sense of healing a sense of well-being a sense of health and it's tapped into all of the trends that are popular in our time with with herbal you know organic natural all the language that has such traction but it I, I just it is deeply entwined with with magic deeply entwined with the folk magic tradition uh, of mormonism and i will make this connection even though i don't think i don't know if i've heard someone else make this connection this is certainly a connection i've made so i'm willing to to discuss it if somebody wants to email me with all caps um but Mormonism, Mormonism emerged um, out of a, a supposed revelation that Joseph Smith received, right? And Joseph Smith was known as a, a local practitioner of folk magic. Um, he he was high, he would be hired um, to use his seer stone. It was called his seer stone um, to divine where things on his uh, things on someone's property might have like buried treasure, like literally. So they would hire him. Um, and it had, it had happened so often that he was hired, uh, to do sort of folk divinization and this folk magic, um, stuff, um, that we have papers, uh, records from 1826 of him being brought to court, um, for people claiming that he was fraudulent, that he wasn't even good at it, that he he was, that he had tricked them, um, and that he had used these seer stones and he hadn't done anything he was supposed to do or whatever. Um, but, but before, before he had the revelation, um, from the angel Moroni and all these other things, um, and, and even when he did, you know, like there's, there's accounts of him like looking into his hat, into the seer stone and then dictating the book of Mormon to his wife who writes it down. And, and the, and the connection I would want to make is, is, and it's not to just bag on Mormonism or whatever, um, all sorts of people do strange things. Um, but the connection is Mormonism emerges at a time and a place in, in sort of Eastern, you know, Northern Northeast, uh, America, uh, that is dominated by a, a pretty austere high Calvinist reform tradition. 
in which God is, at least in people's experience, and don't hate on me if this is not true of all Calvinists, but in people's experience, God is, is fairly distant. Um, he is fairly austere, uh, not warm, not emotive, not super personal. Um, that is the form of Christianity that Joseph Smith uh kind of comes up alongside of and Mormonism if nothing else um is personalist it is personal it is close it is it puts so much back into you know like your hands and the world it's 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 filled with the magical it's filled with uh, ways of it's filled with occult practices it's filled with hidden things it's filled with hidden knowledge it's very enticing it's community oriented it's very anti-establishment anti-government right it's we got to go to utah to get off the grid don't tell us what to do um, magic is always an alternative access to power. Um, you know, the, the, the more spiritualist claims of things, uh, certain of these oil companies are the reason that they're selling so well because they're alternative forms of healing. Right. And, and they don't need scientific evidence. They don't need, they certainly don't need the FDA because, you know, the government can't be trusted. Big pharma is like the, you know, the devil in the world. Um, and so magic is always this tapping into the desire for alternative healing, alternative forms of power. And, and that is literally what Mormonism is, but it, 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 his, it, it gives control back to people. I mean, it literally gives God the Father who in the scripture, the true scripture, um, is bathed in unapproachable light, is, you know, impossible to see and survive. In, in Mormonism, God the Father gets a body becomes like a person becomes becomes a form you know like i mean everything gets nearer and closer and more and more you know us um so it's more intimate than than the high calvinism that he grew up with and and the connections there between magic is something that goes home with you this is why um so many of these things are, are practiced you don't need a degree you you don't need you don't need some special certification. You don't need an institution to back you. These are folk alternative forms of healing, um, and and I understand the desire um, for magic to return because we have a an age of anxiety. We have an age of mental health uh, issues that are rising ever higher. Even though we know about them, they just keep getting worse. Even though we're very aware of the of the proportions of the epidemic um we have a world we can't control i'll tell you we also have inst institutions we can't rely on the government's a disaster like it's it's completely polarized everyone's no one trusts anyone right um religious institutions uh, have failed us right all sorts of institutional ground has just collapsed beneath our feet of course the magical is going to come rushing back in. America is never going to be an austere secularist environment. It was ne it's never going to be a secular atheist environment. America is always tapping into alternative forms of power, right? That's back to our founders, like alternative forms, alternative methods. Um, we are going to creatively come up with any number of different varieties of spiritualism. Um, that's, that's the history of America. Uh, if you do even any a little reading, especially in the 19th century, um, when Mormonism and other things start to emerge, I mean, it is the age of mediums and spiritists and and uh, and people gathered around tables, you know, doing seances like this. That, that is American as apple pie. So so it's not a surprise to me um, that there would be thing like 
that chakra classes would appear on Facebook Live <laughs> along with your morning yoga routine. It's not a surprise to me that that people who I think of as reasonably intelligent will suddenly start talking about energy in a way that is clearly not real, but means something to them. You know, like, oh, you just, you know, you have to catalyze the energy of certain sections of your body. And, you know, it's just like, I mean, it's it's sort of the white person version of like deep Indian thought that it is just does not work well when it travels without its religious and philosophical background um, into like Walmart or whatever it shows up. I guess it'd be Target because these are middle class white people that I'm thinking of. But um, either way, was that too was that too harsh? <laughs> OK, um, either way, um, I'm not surprised by the return of magic. I'm also not surprised by the connection to the feminine, the sacred feminine, because um, historically in patriarchal societies, women are usually excluded from places of power, right? And that could be power in the church. Um, you know, they're not allowed to be pastors or preachers, let's say, in most, in many, in many um, Protestant um, areas, or at least evangelical um, instantiations of the church. Um, women are, are, until recently, not as predominant or not as prevalent in political office. They're not going to be as prevalent in government. It's certainly there, but they're not going to dominate in those areas historically. So magic is always going to appeal to marginal um marginalized voices. It's always going to appeal to people who have not had access institutionally to the traditional avenues of power, right? And so of course it's going to be anti institutional. Of course it's of course it's going to tack into to the goddess theology and sacred feminine language. Of course it's going to be marketed um, from home to home by by moms. Of course it's going to be a mommy blogger's world of you know, astrology charts and my sign says this and my sign says that. Astrology is just another form of magic. Um, the way Christians, a lot of Christians use the Enneagram is another way of, of approaching things through magic, right? Is to take something and to make it try to do things for you or excuse things about you uh, that the Lord has not excused and that the Lord has not done. Um, and so there's there's so many ways that this um, that this travels and I'm not one who's just like blindly defending all our institutions, right? Um, I'd be the first one to critique most all of our institutions. Um, nonetheless, magic and faith are counterposed. They are not. They are not aligned. They are. They are against one another. To become a Christian in the New Testament is to burn the books of magic that you trusted in. To to become a a true child of God in the in the Old Testament is to give up your sorcery and your spiritism, is to give up attempts to control the world and your life outside of prayer. And the difference is huge because prayer is not magic. Magic promises. I'm not saying it does this, but it promises automatic results. Like there's nothing on the bottle of Young Living's Forgiveness or doTERRA's Forgive that says if you have changed how you approach your relationships, if you have apologized, if you have, it doesn't say, any, it has nothing to do with character. It has nothing to do with virtue. It's magic. It's promising that if you literally, if you use this oil, it will aid your yourself in forgiving yourself and moving on from a broken past. How? It's, an, it's a promise of a form of technology, right? That's not what prayer does, though. Prayer is a casting of a burden, a desperate burden sometimes, onto the Lord without any guarantees. 
the guarantee you get in prayer is you will get God. You will not get a particular result. You are not guaranteed a particular result. God is not a vending machine, and he's not just a form of technology that we instrumentalize to produce certain effects. So to pray about the same things that you would struggle with, anxiety, depression, fear, you know, those psychological and emotive things that people are seeking alternative forms um, to heal or to, to improve, to pray is to be brought into a relationship with the living God in which you trust God more than the result. In which you in which you trust God, even if God says no. You know, Paul says what? Uh, three times I begged him to take this thorn in the flesh from me, and he said instead that his strength is made perfect in weakness. I mean, that doesn't sell, right? You're not going to be able to bottle that for $40 and strip a forest and to produce 10 vials of that stuff. And people will try to sell that. I mean, Christians are the worst charlatans in the world, right? I mean, we're the ones who are bottling up Poland Spring. Last article I read, bottling up Poland Spring and claiming it to be holy water from from uh, the Jordan River that's going to somehow bless you because you sewed into my ministry on TV for $1,000. I mean, this is not about someone somewhere else. This is about Christians. It's about Christians who get bored with their faith. It's about Christians who, who want so bad to fix things or, or have viewed God so therapeutically that if God stops producing the therapeutic results, they'll go anywhere else. They'll go anywhere else for forgiveness. I mean, th- this is about a, a, a shallowing out of, of your relationship with God or the discovery that your relationship with God was that of a therapist. And, and when you stop improving in whatever way you would hope to improve, you know, you, you add something or you move on to something else that might promise you better results. This is why I think magic is worth thinking about. It, it, is, it is a promise. It is, a, it is an automatic technology that does not require faith. Because if it required faith, then it not working would be part of prayer right? I mean, if, if, it, if it was anything like prayer, then you wouldn't be able to sell it. Think about what happens when Simon the Magus, quite literally Simon the Magician, uh, is following uh, Peter and John, and they have healed uh, some people, and, uh, oh, and, they, and they have prayed, and the Holy Spirit has, has, has done some work and some miracles, and Simon the Magus literally says, like, what, how do I get this power? And Peter just, because he, he's literally, he's trying to buy it, He's like, where do I buy that vial? Like, where do I buy the Holy Spirit oil? And Simon or Peter turns on Simon the Magus and he says, go to hell and your money go with you. You, you can't buy. I mean, Jesus only gets mad twice in the Gospels that we know of. He gets mad at the tomb of Lazarus because death is his enemy. And he gets mad when he sees people making money and profiting off of God in a house that is supposed to be a house of prayer. They've made it a house of magic because they, you know, here, buy over here. I guarantee the best atonement results from these birds, you know, whatever it is that he's flipping tables over in the temple because of, is because someone is trying to profit off of what is only available through prayer. That's the difference. And again, I'm not saying, oh, if you have a bunch of essential oils or whatever, like you need to burn them all. I'm saying, are you really marketing something called forgive? Like, is that, is that something we can really stomach? 
Um, and, and maybe, maybe you got something else. Maybe for you, it's uh, one of my students, <laughs> I gave this lecture once and one of my students goes, wait, do I need to get rid of my crystals? Does that mean I need to get rid of my crystals? <laughs> and I stopped and I was like, yes, yes, you got to get rid of your crystals. And she was like, oh my gosh. Okay. I didn't know. I thought my crystals were supposed to do, you know, like, <laughs> so, I mean, you know, everyone's got something. This isn't like, oh, you know, whatever. It's like, what are you trying to tap into that is a form of power that is not God. And, and, and here's where I'm going to make, make a, a shift from what, has, what is intend, tends to be a predominantly feminine sphere to a predominantly masculine sphere. The version of magic for many guys, uh, for men in general, is political power. Uh, the version of, of, of alternate forms of power outside of, of God or not necessarily authorized by God is, is political power and, and, and power through force or physical violence um, to try to get what you want through, through rage, to try to secure it with your own bare hands or, or to try to vote what you want into power to, to leverage or manipulate reality in a practical way over your circumstances. It, Christians, uh, maybe especially Christian men, but Christians always fall for the magical idol of political power. If we could just get this judge, if we could just get this thing, it'll automatically, somehow it will cover our hearts, even though this nation is sick and prefers abortion on demand. If we could just get another Supreme Court justice who says that abortion's wrong, if we could just overturn Roe v. Wade, then somehow we will take this magical amulet, this scarab, and we will cover over America's heart, which clearly prefers abortion on demand, and somehow we will magically muffle the voice of people's actual sentiments and we will force instead some other result. Well, that amulet of political office or a Supreme Court justice is going to last as long as a person lasts in that place. And maybe that seems like a big deal to us, and we're willing to compromise and sacrifice everything to that God of magical political authority, authority and power. <laughs> I say authority. Um, authority and power. Um, but you could see how that is a faithless gesture if it is severed from prayer. You know, politics is always meant to be downstream of culture. Christians are not supposed to change politics in order to sort of somehow magically cover over what's poisoned and broken and hurting and sad in our culture. Christians are supposed to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ into this culture so that people have a hope that, that they can get through the fear of bringing a child into this world that they don't know how that's going to go or if they'll have support or if they're going to be alone or all of the things that would actually plague a normal human being um, who, who has not been given maybe much hope. Christians have this message of hope for a heart to be changed, a decision to be made, a person to be able to be brought into this world, um, not because we can magically promise the world will be a better place or a more secure place, but because our faith is in God, that even in the face of a world that appears inhospitable to human life, even in that world, we know there is a good God who has traveled down the paths of the dead and come through the other side with resurrection power, 
and in the face of the darkest hour of humanity's existence, turn tragedy into joy and tragedy into hope and tragedy into resurrection. I mean, those things are not, these are not light promises, but this is all a Christian has. This is the only power we have. It's the power of the name of Jesus Christ. It's the power that is in the gospel. It's not some other form of power. So maybe you get distracted because I named something or whatever, and it's not how you use it or whatever. But I'm, I'm so serious about that. Magic and faith, faith and magic, trying to have power outside of prayer trying to have power that secures your future outside of a radical trust that Jesus is Lord, even if it doesn't produce the results you thought you were paying for. There is something better in the gospel than magic. And I just want you to be looking around you and trying to spot ways in which the magical is returning, the ways in which neo-paganistic practices or or political authoritarian practices are are reemerging as alternate forms of power that would have been extremely obvious to someone like St. Paul in the ancient world as he's in Ephesus looking around at the the temple worship and the hierarchical structures uh, uh, surrounding Artemis in the city of Ephesus down to the silversmith who makes the statues and sells the trinkets for people to bring home with them and put on their shelves. Um, in order to secure a blessing or a healing or forgiveness. And so I just I just want to I just want to put those those things out there and I'll give the last lines here um, to C.S. Lewis who writes, there is something which unites magic and applied science or technology while separating both from the wisdom of earlier ages. For the wise men of old, the cardinal problem had been how to conform the soul to reality, and the solution had been knowledge, self-discipline, and virtue. For magic and applied science alike, the problem is how to subdue reality to the wishes of men, and the solution is a technique. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. I hope you will join us on the next one. Thank you so much for joining us today, everybody. If you found any of this interesting, we do hope you will share the podcast, that you will rate us on iTunes with those five sweet stars, and and that you will subscribe, and that you will tell your friends and your neighbors and your relatives and your mother Lois to subscribe. And your sweet, sweet grandmother, old grandmother Eunice. Eunice should definitely subscribe. Until next time, may you live well, think well, and love well. Godspeed. <laughs>